If you are here in person, if you would please remain standing for the reading of our Scripture. Our Scripture this morning comes out of the book of James, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what our uh, scripture is there in the Pew Bibles. Oh, we don't have Pew Bibles. What am I thinking? Uh, they're in your own Bible. I have no idea what page it's on. So if you would go ahead and look that up or on your, uh, on your phone as well. Those of you who are joining with us on home, you're invited as always to follow along in your own Bibles. Again, James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. Jerry Walker is here to read our scripture for us on video today. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your Spirit upon this, your Word, and make it be for us the Word of life that we might be people of life. And now, God, hide me behind your cross that your message of love and grace might shine through for the redemption of the world through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Before we, get, before we get started, I want to let you know, this happens every single time after I come back from vacation. After I, if I've been gone for a week or two, I always feel like on Sunday mornings, oh my goodness, I don't know how to do this anymore. It feels like I've completely forgotten how to do this, even though I've been doing this for, for 23 years. So I, I apologize for a little bit of trepidation uh, this morning as I'm getting back into the swing of, swing of things. Some people, some people, I believe, mistakenly or wrongly believe that Christianity is simply a a, a, a great philosophy or simply a, a worldview. It's just simply a, a great philosophy, one of the many great philosophies that are, that are in the world, or it's just simply a perspective upon our world. It makes sense to some people, but, but to others it's a bit confusing. It, I, 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 mean, I mean, Christianity has some weird words like justification and atonement and sanctification. We have some, we have some seemingly illogical concepts by, like the Trinity or, or even belief is a bit of a a bit of an illogical concept to some, or especially the divinity of Jesus. How could, how could this man be both fully human yet fully divine? We have moral demands like loving our enemy and forgiving others and, and a relatively strict sexual ethic. It's a worldview and philosophy that, that for many, if not most people around our culture, just just doesn't seem to jive with our postmodern age. But Christianity, I believe, is way more, way more than a philosophy or a worldview. Christianity is a way of life. These beliefs we proclaim in our songs and creeds and prayers and, and doctrines, they must be lived out. Christianity is an action. As much as faith is an action, what we're going to learn in this series, 
Christianity is an action as well. The first time, the first time, I mean, the, the, the first time I read the book of James, I mean really read the book of James, my life was shaken to its core. I was struck first with how practical this book is. And, and if you've been around me very long, uh, I I pride myself on just simply being practical. I'm, I'm not the deepest thinker. I'm not the deepest theological thinker. I'm not an ideologist at all. What I am is incredibly practical. I think it comes from my time of growing up in far northwest Oklahoma on a farm. You, you had to be practical. You had to find things that worked, not just on paper, not just in theory, but things that actually worked. And one of the things that I, that I was so struck with, the, struck by with, uh, in, the, in the book of James was simply how practical, how practical it is. And this, and this book is, is, just, is just so real, and it quickly became my favorite book in all of the New Testament. And so I am, I am honored to be handling the word of the Lord today, especially, especially my favorite book in the New Testament, or at least my favorite epistle in the New Testament. So, so today we're beginning this sermon series dealing and looking and examining and even studying the book of James. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in today. And we want to go ahead and jump right in today. So who was this James? I want to, I want to really begin to just simply lay a foundation here as we begin to look at this book. So who was James? Well, there are a number of different theories of who this James was. There are three Jameses that show up in the New Testament. We have James, the brother of John, the apostle, and J that James was an apostle. Also, uh, the apostle James, son of Alphaeus. Those were two of the Jameses. And then the other James is James, the brother of Jesus. That James does not show up very much in the gospel. It appears as though James, the brother of Jesus, became a believer after his brother, Jesus's death and resurrection. Uh, he, he, became a, he became a believer. He began to, be, he began to uh, associate with the apostles, the 12 apostles. And then very early on, it's, it appears as though almost even months after the death and resurrection of Jesus, James, Jesus' brother, became the presiding elder over the Jerusalem church. And if you know much about early, I mean early, early church history, the only church was the Jerusalem church. It was the only, really was the only church. And so James was an incredibly prominent figure. The brother of Jesus was an incredibly prominent, prominent uh, figure in, in the early church. So I tend to agree with most scholars and especially ancient tradition that the book of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus. I have found it interesting in my study over the years because I have seen some refer to the book of James as the book of Jacob. Uh, it's, con it's confused me at times, especially if it's translated from another language. It will be called the book of Jacob or the epistle of Jacob. And it confused me. Uh, it, con it, was, it was entirely confusing. Well, the reason for that in Hebrew, Jacobaz 
was translated by, by Wycliffe, John Wycliffe in the, in the mid-14th century. When he translated the Bible into English, there were so many prominent Jacobs, especially where there was a prominent Jacob in the Old Testament, he didn't want the New Testament Jacobus, which would have, tri- tri- in almost every other language, it's translated as Jacob. He didn't want those confused with the Old Testament Jacob. And so he translated it as James. Jacobus in Hebrew and in Greek, he translated into James. It's fascinating. So we know today uh, the book of James really is um, the book of Jacobus or the, the, book, the book of Jacob. That was his name. And there are a number of reasons why uh, I think it's important to know that. One, um, we find out from the from the lineage that we have or the, uh, the, the family tree that we have in the Gospels that Jesus' grandfather's name was Jacob. So this brother James was named after his grandfather, Jacob. Also, I think it helps us to tie back that this was a Jewish family. This was not someone who was, I mean, uh, I mean a- again, we all know this, but it it may come to a shock to you that Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. He was the promised Messiah. He was the promised Messiah. And all of his family, they were Jewish. And so when we understand that James's real name was Jacob, it ties us back to that Jewish heritage and helps us to understand who this family was. This book, this book of James, the letter of James, was likely written in the mid-40s, around 44, between 44 and 48 A.D. Well, if you know the timeline of the New Testament, you know that Jesus' death and resurrection took place uh, anywhere between the year 30 and 35. So this book, this epistle of James was written just 10 to 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That makes this book one of the very earliest writings that we have in all of the New Testament. Some have suggested that James wrote this book to, oppo- to oppose Paul's view of salvation by faith alone. Some, in, in, in fact, Martin Luther the, the great reformer Martin Luther, he opposed the inclusion of the book of James into the New Testament canon. He didn't think that James belonged there. He called it an epistle of straw. He believed, he believed that, that James was, was writing in opposition to Paul. Also, he was in opposition to the book of James because uh, James, this letter, is written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion or it was written to Jews in his time. And Martin Luther said, this has no place in our Christian New Testament. It has no place at all. But I I, I hate to take too much issue with a great thinker like Martin Luther, but there have been many others that have also taken issue with that stance of of Martin Luther. It should be, it should be also noted that there were uh, several other books that Luther opposed. However, uh, by the time he began his Reformation, the, the New Testament canon had really been set for almost 1,200 years, so there really wasn't a whole lot that he could, uh, that he could, um, that he could do about it. Others, others have, have found um, the book of James to be really confusing. Uh, 
because it's not laid out in a, in a real logical matter or in a real logical manner. It's not, it's, it's not like Paul's great treatises that we find and his great arguments that we find in the, in the book of Romans, or it's, we don't find the depth that we have in the book of Galatians. We don't find, the, we don't find the, the groundedness that we find in the book of Hebrews. And so some have just simply dismissed James. It's known, by the way, as a general letter or a general epistle. It's known as, a, it, 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 was a, it was a letter written to, again, especially the Jewish Christians in the very, very earliest church. Now, remember, remember, if you will, that in the early church, all Christians, in the earliest church, almost, exclus- almost exclusively, all were Jewish Christians, meaning they were all first Jews before they came to accept Jesus as, as the promised Messiah. In the early church, we find in the book of Acts, we find one of, the, one, of the, one of the great early debates in the church was what to do with all of these Gentiles that Paul was allowing into the church. They had no idea what to do with people like you and me. They knew what to do with uh, with with Jews who became followers of Christ, but they had no idea what to do with you and me. In the book of, in the book of Acts, we find James, Jesus' brother, really uh, stepping into that debate and solving that debate. I just, I just find it fascinating that James played that kind of role in the early church. So, so in, in James, I don't think that we see an opposition to Paul, but instead we see see another side or the other side of the coin. Whereas Paul preached and taught faith alone. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of yourself. No one can boast. You have no works that can profit you at all. On the other side of the coin, however, I believe that James maybe, I I think likely, is trying to clear up some confusion because maybe you have, maybe you have met some folks with this kind of belief. You know, there's really nothing that I can do, and to be honest, really nothing that I should do now that I am a Christian because by Joe, I am saved by grace. I'm a sinner. That's all I'll ever be. I don't need to stop sinning. Sin really doesn't even play a part in my relationship with God. It doesn't matter whether I sin or whether I don't sin. It makes no difference at all because I am saved by grace and there is nothing that I can do about it. And that's the extreme that some of Paul's followers were following. Indeed. Now, hear me. Hear me. I fully affirm that we are saved by grace through faith. We can do absolutely nothing to earn our salvation. It's one of the accusations of of those who are more of the especially hyper-Calvinist bent that would would declare against those who uh, consider themselves Arminian. Uh, They would would say, you see, you Arminians believe that you can earn your salvation Absolutely, we do not believe that you can earn your salvation. The works and the good works that we have are absolutely worth nothing. 
except to prove our faith and to show our faith. You see, I believe that's what Paul, or that's what James is saying. You say you have faith without works. Well, I, sh- I say, show me your faith by your works. You see, James is saying, and I believe that this is what the entire book of James teaches, and it also teaches in very practical terms that we are indeed saved by grace through faith. However, our faith is shown in the way that we live out our faith. Sometimes, I believe, as Christians, we get John 3.16 wrong. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we have turned that, that, that word belief into a, into a mental kind of thing. If we just, if we just agree, if, if there's just something in our heart that says, oh, Lord Jesus, I know that you died for me on the cross, that's it. If we can just get people down to an altar and say a special prayer, or we can teach them the, if they can ever recite the four spiritual laws, they are in like Flynn. But that's not what, I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches, and I certainly don't think that's what James teaches. You know, dear friends, I, I've, I've known some people and some, I think, well-intentioned Christians before that really had that mentality. You know, I, I prayed a sinner's prayer when I was 12 years old at a church camp, and so I never have to do another thing in my life. I've got all the fire insurance that I need. You can take that church and do with it whatever you want. I know that I made a decision once upon a time. I have faith they say. But James would say, James would say, if you aren't living out your faith, you don't have real faith. If you're not a doer of the Word that we're going to be looking at here in a few weeks, you you don't have faith. You don't have faith at all. You don't have faith at all. So this, this question, or this statement, well, I'm just a sinner, that's all I'll ever be. That's a statement that I believe James begins to to wrestle with here in the very beginning of his epistle. It's the exact question being struggled with by saying, by people who say, I'm a sinner, that's all I'll ever be. Be you, you see, in the, in the Jewish culture, they believe that humans were created with, with two tendencies. We were created with a, with a good tendency and an evil tendency. It's almost as if, you remember those cartoons, you would have a little angel on one shoulder and a little demon on the other, on the other shoulder. It was as if, in the Jewish thought, that both of those were part of who we were. We were created both with, a, with a, a good tendency and an evil tendency. There were, there were theories about where that, those tendencies came from. Satan, there were, there were some that said that, that Satan created the evil tendency. Others said that there were fallen angels that created that, that evil tendency about us. There are others that just simply said that humans uh, kind of created that evil tendency on our own. But whatever the case... You see how, I mean, they say, well, 
uh, Satan was created by God, and the fallen angels were created by God, and humans were created by God. Well, therefore, logically then, God created us with both good intentions and evil intentions. So, God must be responsible for my evil intentions. God must be responsible for my temptations that I experience. And again, this idea fits back with our natural tendency to be buck passers. We find it in the, in the story in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. You remember? Eve was, Eve was tempted, and so she came to Adam with the apple or the, the, the forbidden fruit, and, and Adam ate of that forbidden fruit, and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit. You remember? They found themselves to be naked, and they closed themselves. And so the next day, as God was walking through the garden, he was searching for Adam and Eve, and he found them. And he saw that they were clothed, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of that forbidden fruit? And do you remember what Adam's response was? Oh, this woman you gave to me. She's the one that gave it to me. Do you remember Eve's response? Oh, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent that made me eat it. At the core of who we are, we are buck passers. We don't, we don't want to, we don't, we just simply, um, well, we want, we want to blame others. We evade responsibility. Adam blamed Eve and God, and Eve blamed the serpent. But James says that it is not so. God does not tempt us. Temptation comes to all of us. Temptation is part of our fallen world. It's a broken world. And in a broken world, we are going to experience temptation. Even us Methodists, even us Methodists who believe in entire sanctification, and we're going to get to that, even us Methodists, we believe that temptation is present in all of our lives. If it was present in Jesus' life, I think that we're probably all going to be tempted. Jesus was tempted, and so we are tempted as well. So what exactly is temptation. What exactly is temptation? Theologian Warren Wiersbe said this of temptation. This was his, uh, his definition. Temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. I like that. Temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad, in a bad way. Passing a test in school, well, that's a good thing. Cheating to pass that test? Oh, that's a bad thing. Getting a job, it's a, it's a good thing. Lying in that job interview, that's, that's, that's a bad thing. Having more money to care for your family, it's a good thing. Cheating on your taxes to get more money, that's, that's a bad thing. He believes that, that temptation is, is really trying to take the shortcut, trying to do a bad thing in order, in order to get a good thing. So let's, let's, follow, let's follow this thought pattern here of James as he begins to outline this. Let no one say that he is tempted. I am being tempted uh, by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so we've already looked at that. Temptation does not come from God. Temptation comes from our fallen world. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement. It all begins with temptation. And when temptation takes hold in our hearts, it leads to sin. And when sin is lived out in our lives, it leads to death. I'll be honest. That's a, I think most people would consider that an overstatement. Sin leading to death, are you really serious? I mean, it's just a little transgression, we believe. It may be a lifestyle like we have it today. Oh, it may be wrong in your eyes, but it's not wrong in my eyes. I'm okay with it, so you ought to be okay with it, is what our culture says. So what exactly is sin? Some define sin as a transgression of one of God's known laws. However, however, my working definition of sin is a little bit more practical, I think. Sin, I believe, is anything that draws us away from God or from our neighborhood or from our neighbor. Sin is anything that draws us or even distracts us away from God and from our neighbor. I think at the very heart of sin, at the very heart of sin, if someone asked me for a one-word definition of sin, I believe that sin is selfishness. Ultimately, that's what sin is. It's putting self above everything and everyone else. It's why the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Selfishness is the antithesis of the great commandment. You see, when we begin to put ourselves first, when we become selfish, when we first think of ourselves before we think of others, it's sin. It's sin. John Wesley, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism and the great British revivalist preacher, said this about sin, and throughout his life he had lots to say, he had lots to say about sin, but he said this about sin. Listen, he said, by sin, I here understand outward sin according to the plain common acceptation of the world an actual voluntary transgression of the law, of the revealed written law of God, of any commandment of God, acknowledged to be such at the time that it is transgressed. But, he goes on to say, now listen closely here. These are powerful words of Wesley. But, whosoever is born of God while he abides in faith and love and in the spirit of prayer and thanksgiving not only doth not but cannot commit sin so long as he thus believeth in God through Christ and loves him and is pouring out his heart before him he cannot voluntarily 
transgress any command of God, either by speaking or acting what he knows that God hath forbidden. Here's what Wesley is saying here. He is not saying that Christians cannot sin. What he is saying, however, is that Christians who are abiding in the Lord, Christians who are abiding in prayer, Christians who are committing their entire lives and their entire hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, they cannot sin. But I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. But most of the time, if not almost all of the time. Most of the time, I'm not fully abiding in the Lord. I'm not fully abiding in prayer. I'm not giving my heart and all of my life and all of my being to the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, I'm living it for me. It's a very Methodist kind of thought. Again, comes straight from John Wesley, and we're going to look more at sanctification and, 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 what, and what that means in our lives. Wesley, Wesley in, his, in his sermon called The Great Privilege of Those That Are Born of God, he outlined eight steps, eight steps that a Christian has to go through in order to commit a sin. This is mind-blowing. I promise, the first time I read this, I said, uh, John Wesley lost his ever-loving mind. There is no way. There is no way, because here's what happens typically in my life. Most of the time, I don't even recognize that there's a temptation around the corner. I just sin. I mean, I, I know that I'm sure that's completely shocking to everyone but my, but except my family, that your preacher sins. I, I'm sure that's completely shocking uh, to all of you. But I'll, I'll be honest, I don't even recognize some temptations sometimes. But Wesley said that there are eight, actually eight steps that a Christian, a Christian who is, who is abiding in the Lord, a Christian who is fervent in prayer, a Christian who is fully and wholeheartedly given their entire lives and, 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 and entire hearts and entire beating to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there are eight steps, eight steps you have to take in order to, to commit sin. I want, I want us to look at this very, very quickly. First, he says that we begin in a state of holiness. Pure and undefiled Christians are in a state of holiness. He took very seriously Jesus' words, be holy as God is holy. And he says that in our pure and undefiled state, when we are wholeheartedly sold out to the Lord, when we are completely abiding in the Lord, we are in a state of holiness. But then, but then uh, some sort of temptation arises. Temptation arises. I'll read you the words of Wesley. A temptation arises, whether from the world, the flesh, or the devil, it, it matters not, but a temptation arises. And then, and then the Spirit of God gives that person a warning that sin is near and bids him more abundantly to watch and to pray. So a uh, temptation comes our way, and then we have immediately have a, have a check of the Spirit. Do you ever get kind of those heart flutters? That's kind of what I call it, kind of a heart flutter, and you go, whoa, okay, 
and the Spirit lets you know, hey, hey now, be careful. Whether it's a, whether it's a clickbait ad that you find on social media, whether it's a description of a, of a show on Netflix, and you see some things that may not be the best for you to be watching at this point, or the temptation arises for you to maybe tell just a little white lie, you just get that little bit of a flutter in your heart. It's just check of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, 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 is bidding you more, more abundantly to watch unto prayer. And then, number four, Wesley says, then the Christian gives way in some degree to temptation, which now begins to grow pleasing to that person. We begin to think about that temptation. We begin to think about what is behind that clickbait ad there. I wonder if it's somebody who's scantily clad, and we began to, to roll over in our minds what in the world that might be behind, behind that advertisement, and then that temptation began to become a little bit more pleasing to us. And then Wesley says, the Holy Spirit is grieved, faith is weakened, and, and that person's love of God begins to grow cold. powerful words. The Holy Spirit is, is grieved. And number six, the Spirit reproves more sharply and saith, this is the way, walk thou in it. The Holy Spirit will check us and reprove us very clearly. Be careful this is not the path that God is calling you to go down. This narrow path, this is the path of the Lord. That person turns away from the voice of God and listens to the pleasing voice of the tempter. And then finally, Evil desire begins and spreads in the soul until faith and love vanish. Then, then we are capable of committing outward sin, the power of the Lord being departed from us, Wesley says. So here's the problem that I had when I first read this sermon from John Wesley 25 years ago. I think I, I think I go through those eight steps in about 0.2 seconds. <laughs> I don't even recognize I'm going through them. Temptation arises, boom, I'm sinning. But over the years, but over the years as I've studied more and, and more, not only the book of James, but also as Wesley begins to describe this process of outward sin in a Christian, I've begun to realize that he was way more wise than I ever would have admitted. You see, I believe that the Lord wants holiness from you and from me. Why? So that we can save ourselves? Absolutely not. But so that we can begin to live out our faith. Again, it's the flip side of the coin of what Paul taught. So we can begin to live out our faith. And I believe, sisters and brothers, 
I believe that this book of James, as we begin to live in this book of James, this is going to be the, be the best witness that we can have in our world today. In our world that is so fractured, in our world that is so full of despair, in our world that is so toxic, in our world that is so hate-filled, when we can begin to live out our faith in, in a way of grace and in a way of love, people are going to notice it. You know, we have been, for the most part, a fairly polite society. I mean, you know, when, when, we, see, I mean, when we see a stranger coming by, we, we hold open the door for him, don't we? I mean, we face it all the time down in the daycare throughout the middle of the week. We'll have someone that doesn't need to be let in to the daycare. They'll be outside on the, on the door knocking, and a wonderful parent very well-intentioned, faithful follower of Jesus, they'll go over and open the door for them. Because that's what, you, that's what a polite society does. No longer are we a polite society. One, we're not allowed to be a polite society. I mean, goodness gracious, we can't get within six foot of holding the door open for somebody. That's, that's that part. But then the other part is we become so disunified as a culture. It seems as though our culture, instead of valuing grace and love and, uh, and, and being nice to people, we are, valuing, um, we are valuing hatred. We are valuing toxicity. We are, we are, we are valuing disunity. I believe when we begin to live into these words, recognizing temptation when they come our way, doing everything that we can to give of our heart and our life to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can live out this faith, I think, we're, I think it's going to be one of, the most, one of the biggest evangelistic tools that we'll have over the next 25 years in our culture. It's just simply living out our faith. I'm not sure that it's going to take a lot of preaching out on, the st- on, out on the street corner. I think it's going to take a lot of living out our faith by the body of Jesus Christ. So Paul continues. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. It's not something you hear much in today's time, does it, do we? Sin is pretty minor. We don't take sin seriously at all anymore. Oh, but the gospel writers did. No doubt the gospel writers did. I just simply want to leave you with this question. As maybe you're pondering some of what we've said today about the power of the Lord to empower us to not only forgive us of sin, but also to free us from the power of sin. I want to leave a question with you from my very dear friend, Kevin Watson, who's a professor at Candler School of Theology. Kevin said this, here's what it comes down to. Which do, do, which do you believe is more powerful, sin or God? If you believe that people are not able to go and sin no more, then, then you believe that sin is more powerful than God. If you believe that God is more powerful than sin, which 
I think is the conclusion that most Christians must come to, or that all Christians must come to, then you may need to take a closer look at the reflexive excusing of the reality of sin in our lives. It doesn't have to be this fray. These lives of sin, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to live our lives going through those eight, those eight steps towards sin. We don't have to go through our lives like that. It doesn't have to be that way. You see, I believe in the power of God more than I believe in the power of sin. I believe that God can and will free me from this law of sin and death. I believe, I believe that someday, somehow, not by my own will, hear me now, not by my own will, but by the very power of God, that somehow God's going to free me from the power of sin and the reality of sin in my life. And I pray to the Lord that even my family would testify to it. It's not just my church people that'll think that I'm a really good guy, but it's my family and those who are closest to me that will say, this man has been touched by the Lord. This man This man is holy just as God is holy. And my prayer is that God would work the same in your life. Same in your life. That you would recognize temptations when they come your way. That you would refrain from beginning to, that to begin to become pleasing to you. That you would flee from this power of sin in your life. Would you bow with me? Oh, Lord, we thank you for these words of James. These convicting words of James. Some of us are really, really struggling with this idea and this concept because a sinner is all we have ever been and it's all we've ever expected to be. But, Lord, you've called us to trust in you more than we trust in the power of sin. And so today, again, we put our foot down. We draw a line in the sand and we say, today's gonna be different. Not, we're not gonna will ourselves into your presence and into holiness, but instead we are going to so give of ourselves, we are going to so abide in you and abide in prayer, we are going to so give of our lives, of our hearts, of our entire being to you, that Lord Jesus, we trust that you're going you're gonna to rip us from the hands of sin. You're going to rip us from the hands of the tempter. Oh, Lord, keep us from temptation. Deliver us from temptation. And empower us to abide in you. Deliver us from death. Deliver us to life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.